If you have ever travelled in a premium cabin on an aircraft, it is more than likely that Adam White's company, Factory Design, has been responsible for the seat you're sitting in. Adam is a leading product designer specialising in aircraft cabin and product design. He has worked with, amongst others, Etihad, Aer Lingus, Four Seasons and Virgin Atlantic, and he has won numerous design awards for his work. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to see you. Likewise, Sean. Thank you for the invitation. So today we're talking, I think, predominantly about you and your work and the wonderful world of aircraft and product design. So I wanted to start with you just telling us a bit about yourself and how, you know, the work you do and how you got to where you are doing what you're doing today. Um, well, I mean, I have to say it has been a, a sort of long journey, but but one, therefore, that started a very long time ago. I, I've realized when asked a similar question over the years that from a kind of early age, I was dismantling things and not just to break them, but to understand how they went together. I was always intrigued by um, just by stuff, by things, um, particularly kind of old radio sets or anything mechanical. I simply had to dismantle it and try and understand it and put it back together in a different way. Invariably, it, it wouldn't work again, but uh, it was a kind of process of learning. And and I imagine by the time I was eight or nine, I was determined to be an inventor, um, as as uh, probably my mother would have would have called it. And that kind of tumbled into design. I guess I was delighted at school when I realised that there was a a career that could be had making things up, as it were. So that was that's how I uh, originally became a designer. I guess that inquiring mind. Did you grow up in the city or the country? London. Born a Londoner. Uh, okay. <laughs> However, I did spend a, a few years in, in my sort of teens living down in the country. So I'm never quite sure where home is. I, 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 there's an awful lot of, of me that loves being out of town as well. But I, I guess in truth, I'm a city boy. Yeah, the reason I ask is because I know lots of people who grew up in the country and their perception of, I think, creation or innovation or design comes from them being explorers in their countryside, yeah. you know, whittling yeah. a piece of wood or, yeah, you know. I, I, I think the first thing I got when I went to the country was a, was a collection of pen knives. So, yes, I, I, I understand that. Do you know uh, that that sort of sense of exploration makes a lot of sense when you picture somebody in the country running around in, in the countryside. But actually, I, I think I was probably that, that same character in the city. And, and I was as, as beguiled by the city scape, buildings and, and everything to do with it, as I was by running around in, in the countryside. So it, it, uh, it does cut across both aspects, as it were. And you've had quite a varied career, starting at Pentagram and then uh, working with Seymour Powell. Do you know, I, I was just damn lucky, I always think, because I started at Pentagram in the early 80s. And, and at the time, there were, were not very many design consultancies. But Pentagram was the model that um, it was, certainly wasn't the only one, but it, but it was a very successful model. It was multidisciplinary, which I liked. I loved the fact that uh, though I was a product designer, I could talk about the, what the graphic designer guys were doing or in the architecture. So it was a terrific foundation. I described it in the past as the perfect finishing school to having done the theory at, at uh, college to then do, I don't know, five or six years, however long I was there, really learning the craft and learning the, the job of uh, management as well, which I, I was intrigued by, I have to say working with other people and learning how to work in a team, I guess. What is the most exciting thing you do in your work? Gosh, the most exciting thing, I think, it's an interesting question because the actual process of design has a sweet spot of when it really all comes together in your head and you will, you will have that same feeling, that same emotion as you see everything lining up whether it's a, a concept for a, a whole aircraft cabin or um, for a, a new 
you know, ratchet spanner, for instance, something very much that sounds very mundane. But, uh, but, and I try to find two extreme examples because the the real um, the real excitement is is when you see everything aligning in your head, uh, and I, I can't describe it any better than that. But you, there, there is just a feeling, an emotion that you get when you realise that you, that you can see the end of or, uh, the result. I guess of solving the problem and and it is problem solving that's what we do and how has your problem solving had to change over the you know past i don't know five years i mean we think about all the technological innovations and specifically within the work that you do there are huge numbers of innovations that are constantly taking place and you're having to address um as you design the product yeah do you know the, the process of design in terms of what happens in your head uh, that hasn't changed at all. Um, I think one of the um, ways that we describe what we do uh, is if you picture the guy on the stage spinning plates on the end of poles, it, there are certainly a few more poles and plates to keep spinning as a designer, but it's everything about the communication aspect of the process that's changed. Uh, and it's changed an awful lot in the last five years. And in fact, if you go back even further, 10 or 15 years, the changes are, are even more extraordinary. Um, the ability to visualize stuff now is astonishing. But I was thinking only the other day about the disaster at Marble Arch in London, where, where for anyone who's, who's listening and who's seen the mound, um, the visualization of that done by the architectural company was sensational. Um, it, it was so real. You could feel it. You know, you could see it and smell it. Um, but the reality is, is, um, is, has failed to deliver, shall we say. And I think you see that across the board. Um, the ability to visualize has gone beyond uh, a hand-drawn, however beautifully, image the fact it used to be hand-drawn told you it was conceptual, whereas now you're given what appears to be a photograph of something, a crystal ball. And I think that's actually not a very good thing. I don't think that's very healthy. That mound is <laughs> astonishing. Extraordinary for <laughs> so many ways. <laughs> yes, I know. And you're absolutely right. You know, you see those visualizations and you think, oh my God, that's going to be amazing. And then you see the real thing and it looks like AstroTurf with a couple of twigs yeah, and stuck it, to it. It's even faceted. And I think, you know, you see exactly that problem, whether it's a bloody great mound or um, uh, a little piece of jewelry. Uh, visualization now allows you to create something that appears real. And if you're not very skillful in how you use that visualization and what, uh, what parameters you apply to it, uh, effectively, you're, you're, it's the emperor uh, with new clothes, you know, problem of, uh, of overselling, I guess, of, of believing in something that's never going to actually be there. And uh, and it can be a disaster. Yeah, and I, I was speaking to somebody else not that long ago, who's uh, the uh, Casey Campbell, who's the uh, managing director for Gamesloft in um, Canada, talking about exactly what you've just discussed this visualization. And we were talking about you know cars and car adverts, amongst other things, where you know they these are hyper real renders yep. of something that is not actually there and what impact or effect that has on, on the customer because they don't know they're not looking at the car. Uh, at the, well, yeah, of course, if you look back historically for many decades, manufacturers would always produce the concept car um, and indeed other uh, in other industries, the concept um, product would appear at an exhibition. But the concept car, most people were aware um, it will never look like that. It would have been the thing most uttered in standing at the exhibition every year to see the latest. Uh, and invariably it wasn't. But, but in a way, your relationship as the viewer allowed you to understand that. Uh, and, and so my concern about the ease with which you can create fabulous photorealistic imagery is that um, 
it is sleight of hand. It's it's not really what's going to happen. And I think um, you see work going to businesses who who have the biggest servers to drive the best renders. And I don't think anyone really, uh, you know, does very well out of that. Thinking about all that we've spoken about so far, about the creative process and about, you know, kind of visualizations of products and experiences. Um, what inspires you? I guess everything somehow. Um, and that's a fairly broad answer. But, um, I, you know, I think around us, the whether you're, we, we talked earlier about um, the growing up in the country or growing up in the city, you, you know, within these things, the, there are endless things to give you impressions and, and inspiration. I think what I've learned over the years is to to look closer and closer at the brand who I'm working for and at the history because you really un- need to understand both the present and the past to have an idea where the future could be to to kind of get an alignment I guess and once you've got that projection then you can start to fill the void of the future with whatever is is material to to the client's needs and that leads us perfectly into um a question about luxury oh, you know, the yes. past the present and the future <laughs> how does design communicate luxury and i'm really thinking about the world in which you work you know with specifically with aircraft design i mean at the top end it's so important to get that product right so i was just wondering how what you do communicates luxury. The first word for me that sits below luxury in a way is I immediately think craft, uh, and that's a product designer's viewpoint. The interesting thing is if you go back a long way, everything was was kind of handmade or or craft-based, as it were, and luxury will almost always, in terms of products, reflect handmade and craft so what is now luxury used to be a a century or two ago simply normal Um, industrialization has created an entire other category of the world which is sub-luxury so i I guess you know it it kind of aligns in my head in 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 that respect what is sub-luxury well sub-luxury is just normal stuff (laughs) okay Okay, yeah, I like that one. Well, you can't. I think the thing is, you cannot go to to a store that sells luxury, luxury goods, and not experience in your uh, analysis of what's available, and not experience the quality of craft, the handmade, the the hand stitched, you know, the the hand polishing or or whatever it is. a lot of a lot of um, what you will experience when you're breathing in luxury in a in a high end store is is the impact of of a person making something as opposed to a machine. That's an interesting that's an interesting one because I often think um, completely the opposite. Oh yeah, that you go into a store which is a branded now because everything's branded as a luxury store offering luxury products but you don't get that same sense of um connection because there's so many goods you know they've got stores all all over the world and i i think i've been banging this drum for such a long time now about this idea of craft which i absolutely agree with what you've said but i think that the 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 mass-produced element of what these companies do slightly undermines the craftsmanship of the craftsman. Well, I, yeah, I understand what you mean. And of course, um, it's hard to find a maker, a high-end maker these days, who doesn't run a kind of diffusion line of products uh, that they're knocking out in a much higher volume. That's commerce, uh, you know, in a nutshell. But they would always exemplify the, themselves and their brand by... Um, the picture of the artisan hand stitching some gnarly piece of leather that that, that they then buff and and cut and file and polish and uh, you know and I think that that at the heart 
that's that's how we see and perceive and enjoy luxury. We enjoy the idea of that human interaction, that human hand, as opposed to a press or a, a machine tic-tacking away in a factory. But then I'm thinking about the work that you do and thinking about aircraft design and how that's changed. You know, the seat is not just a seat anymore. No, absolutely it? not. But it, and, and, and that's it, you're selling freehold. So if you think of the price of your ticket when you get on an aircraft, the smallest piece of freehold, uh, the economy seat, as much as possible is crammed into that little space. Um, and the bigger the space that you want, the more money you spend. Um, and within that space, the, the, you know, we, the designers, have been looking for more and more opportunity to engrandize it and make it. I, I, uh, 20 years ago, a luxurious aircraft seat was a, was a folded mattress. It was so big. Um, and, and thankfully, the world has has become more refined where it's understood that you can see luxury without need without it needing to be nine inches thick you can see it in the materials and the finish and the style and and if you've been able to reduce the bulk uh, of the seat itself you've been able to add other functionality and i think that's one of the biggest things that my industry has brought to aviation is that type of thinking? Because I'm, I'm just thinking about when I was a kid, and we were. I used to travel quite a bit as a kid with my parents, and without my parents. In fact, they used to, you know, ship me off on a plane um, around the world to family. <laughs> but I, I remember being on planes where they used to have galleys, and they used to cook on open flames. And absolutely, yeah, <laughs> yeah, happy days. <laughs> I mean, it's just kind of you think about that now, unbelievable. Well, and of course, trains as well. You know, they would have a flame grill to do your breakfast. Um, but yes, of course, a, a lot has changed in that respect. Um, but, it, but equally, it has adapted, I think, as well. But if you look right back uh, at um, the middle of last century and earlier, aircraft interiors were domestic. You know, they were Lloyd Loom chairs and curtains at the windows. And they were very, very domestic. Um, and and I think the language talked in aviation design for interiors has moved through a, a long period of talking boutique hotel uh, and indeed domestic. Uh, I'm not quite sure where it's going because, of course, the last year and a half has thrown up, uh, let's say, a few issues. Um, I, I think most exciting for me is that is that we've been talking. Uh, my business for a long time about about weight, uh, and I guess that's a legacy of a very long time ago. Working uh, for British Airways on their Concorde aircraft, where we had to take weight out of the seat, it was the only way to add other other features into the uh, into the aircraft, and uh, and so in a way, as one of our first jobs in aviation. It's always been there with us. It's always been something we we think about, and of course, um, you know, if the, with the enormous um, pressure on aviation to uh, address, um, uh, you know, in simple terms, its carbon footprint, let, let's pull more weight out of that cabin by being more innovative and, and clever about how we design the products in it. What has struck me listening to you now is that with aircraft design, the luxury experience has changed through innovation and, technolo and technological applications. So the experience is so different now to, as to, to what it was 20 years ago because of the innovation and the technology. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, everything about the interior of an aircraft constantly evolves. So, um, yeah, and you're exactly right. Uh, the way that we would assess a product uh, that, that fits in the luxury um, category on the ground is often to do with its history and its age. Um, whereas in aviation, it is another aspect of luxury that's being reflected. Uh, and you know, when you think more about about how you know about what the word means to to people and how it can be used, it can be used so broadly. 
you know, a luxurious experience or a luxury product. There's a there's a big difference right there. When you are f- flying, you're getting both the luxury product and the luxury Absolutely. experience. Yeah. And you find that in retail, of course, at the higher end you go, the the more they try to complete the the delivery of of luxury. But I, I was describing that in aviation, the innovation has, uh, particularly at the front, where luxury is um, attempted to be measured, has evolved more and more. Uh, through um, hotel and, and in some respects, domestic experience. Um, you know, we put uh, ensuite bathrooms alongside your seat so you have your own loo. Now, uh, that's architecture in a way, but it would be seen and described as luxury. Uh, and it's about the asset that you have as opposed to the uh, refined design or materials, which, which I would say... Uh, one would expect and indeed get, you know, great quality from, um, but but the luxury is is the asset. The Orange Express have recently released imagery of their new cabins. They they are quite substantial for being on a train. Yeah, they're quite amazing. And there's this company in Japan, and I don't remember their name, um, the name of it. And the train is an architectural masterpiece. Yeah. There are only seven cabins or seven whatever the rooms on this amazing train that goes from Tokyo. No, I, it's good. I mean, I think what you've touched on is is a really very important thing, and that's that um, the word experiential. You know, people want an experience. That's what they want to spend their money on. In the in the past, you would get on an aircraft merely to get you somewhere. Uh, we know these days that the journey, if you're away for a week, long weekend or for a week, the journey is a not insignificant part of of that vacation. And so you, you're going to probably splash out on a nice, you know, uh, Uber X, uh, or sorry, Uber exec to get you there. It, you, you probably want to get the lounge and they've made that available now, even if you're not a member, because you can buy your way into lounges. The aircraft you're going to spend quite a bit of time on that, especially if you're going at you know, so everything, everything now is understood as part of an experience. And the better that experience can be, you know, the more you'll enjoy it. And that in itself is luxury. Uh, otherwise, you could just sit in an upright seat, you know, bring some sandwiches and job done. But uh, uh, but you, but we all sort of strive, I guess, to 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 have a better experience. And of course, uh, luxury is in a way the definition of a better experience for a lot of people. The train is called Shikishima. Ah, okay. I must remember to book a ticket. <laughs> yes. Well, you have to go to waiting yes, list absolutely. first. <laughs> but, but it is quite phenomenal. So, how do you think the travel experience has changed now at the at the top end? So, in the typically in the front of the aircraft. Um, well, I think as we've touched on it the the offer that you can buy at the front has simply got a has got much more refined it's and by refined i don't mean the the cuisine i mean the uh, the product the experience perhaps on sweet lose perhaps a shower the the amount of innovative thought that goes into the seat is astonishing it, they are genuinely very sophisticated and clever structures and interestingly, from a design point of view, when you're working at the front of an aircraft, you're working with handmade products uh, because there may be eight or ten first-class seats and perhaps eight or ten aircraft they're going into. So every part, more or less, is, is handmade. And so the, uh, so the quality and the touch and feel is at a level that it's not so easy to do in any other way. I, I think I've mentioned to you before, I was fortunate enough to do a project with Airbus, um, with yeah. the private um, division, went on a tour of the factory in Toulouse. And it was amazing to see, you know, the level of detail 
that they go into when they're designing a plane that would typically have, I don't know, 200 seats if it were a commercial aircraft, and then, you know, 14 seats for a private aircraft with, as you've said, you know, bathrooms and shower rooms and bedrooms and i mean quite astonishing it is astonishing we've we have been involved a little bit in in that world but uh, mostly we're in commercial aviation um i i, I always or not always but i often look at, at private jet interiors submitted for you know the annual design awards and i i wonder quite why uh, there's so little obvious um proper innovation there's sometimes some quite extravagant styling uh or, or intelligent styling but a lot of the time they just seem to be dating back you know some decades to to the stuffed mattress uh look and feel and sort of heavy um buttoned cream leather and lots of wood and you know and you do wonder why why the why it's just sort of missing the trick, as it were, because you can be super modern and incredibly luxurious uh, and appropriate. I think um, there's such a kind of there's such a clash for me between what you see inside and what you see outside, and the closer the the beauty of the engineering aligns with with the interior, the better. I I often think. I, I want to um, just talk a little bit about the seats in. Um first or first or business class because you you touched upon you know the complexity of the of the actual product but also the materials and the craftsmanship just can you give us a bit more insight into how complicated these things are and, and what the design process may be to get from the concept through to the finished product yeah i think we would need to set aside at least an hour <laughs> to, to answer that okay. um <laughs> Do you know the I, a snapshot? Well, a snapshot. Yeah, I guess the, two, the 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 when you look at when you appraise what you've got to do, there are the the one hugely significant uh, factor is is it an existing seat mech or or are you going to do it all new? Uh, and there's you know it swings and roundabouts. I guess if you can do an entirely new um, mechanism inside the seat, you can control and develop the way that the seat moves and uh, and the way that it it uh, offers offers the passenger uh, sort of different positions. That's kind of a fundamental quality of the seat, but that does add eighteen months, two years to a program and significant cost. Whereas if you've got an existing seat chassis, what you're looking at is how to dress it you know what can you do to add value and improve on what was there before a long time ago we did the first british airways uh, premium economy seat and that was they had recognized there was a big vacuum between economy passengers and business passengers and that a lot of people were you know traveling in business class uh, for work and when they went to go on holiday, they suddenly found themselves down the back with perhaps with their family uh, because business class was so expensive. So premium economy was a brilliant idea. And the form it took was that to, to design that first seat for British Airways, we took what had previously been a business class seat frame because the envelope, the size and the envelope of that uh, had been left behind by the developments in business, which were all by now lying flat. Uh, and so um, it was a job of reclothing, I guess. And what about the materials that you use? Yeah, I mean, I think materials are, uh, if you're a designer of aircraft cabins, you will have what we call a trim and finish or a, or a you know colour and trim library. And it's the most active and frequently updated part of the design studio um it's you know on a weekly basis materials are coming in and we're talking to suppliers about new materials and uh, there's a lot of innovation in materials a lot of new materials coming out increasingly materials that feel like the finest poltrona frau leather but actually they're a, a, a much thinner reconstituted type material um, that that can be 
you know, recycled, etc., etc. But all materials are tested for sort of flame proof, etc., etc. And uh, so there's a lot of scrutiny of, of what you can do. Um, but as I said, there's a lot of essentially mimicry of, of things that look and feel very, very familiar, but, but there's a science in them that, that the passenger wouldn't, uh, wouldn't believe had, had gone on. Yeah, and I think that's why these, these conversations are really interesting because I think more often than not, we, the consumers, don't really appreciate the complexity of, of the design and make process of products that we would typically use, you know, sometimes every day. I mean, granted, not everybody flies business class and first class every day, but, you know, even those who do, you know, you get on the plane, you sit down, do you think about, oh, my God, this is so complex, and and you look around at the materials and the finishes and you think, you know, this is fantastic. Do you know, I think for a long time, if you were in economy you would have no observation other than that the, the, the magazine was rather crumpled. Um, these days, you're, you're, you're likely to, to note um, the improvements from the front to the back. Um, and when the, you know, a long time ago, when you were given, let's say, an economy class seat to design, you would look down at that seat and, and walk around it and, and you know, puff up the cushion and poke at the headrest and everything would be there. Actually, when you're designing for economy class, your attention needs to be very much focused on the seat in front of you because you own that area when, when you're sitting in, in the seat behind it, as it were. And, and so... Um, you know, you do you do need, uh, I guess, to consider it in the round, and, and consider the experience uh, in and in turn that will tell you where to focus your your energies. I was wondering what you need to do as a company to address the issues around the environment and sustainability through the materials you use, and also I just wanted to ask when the an aircraft is decommissioned, do they just decommission the entire thing or do they salvage for example the frameworks in some of the chairs yeah. well, just to kick off on that last question um there are a lot of specialist companies that will dismantle and sell on um and entire aircraft um could be reused e e either as um well, I guess if we're talking decommissioned, then they won't move across into cargo. They'll literally be dismantled. But they're very carefully taken apart a lot of the time. And and you do, in the industry, you will see ship sets of seats, etc., being sold on for other other people to use. Um, and of how we try to look after the world, you know, dealing as best as possible with the impact of flying stuff around as, as i think i've touched on we've always done our level best to lighten it and that is that that's a two-pronged approach you know you constantly keep up to date with new materials and there are some astonishing developments happening all the time in materials but also it's to do with how things look and what is fashionable so years ago, it was fashionable to take essentially a mattress and fold it up, put some mahogany at each end, cover it in, in leather, and that was a first-class seat. It, but the world has moved on largely, except as we've touched on in private jets. Um, the world has moved on from perceiving luxury as being about just scale. And I, I think... Um, that's to do with um, increasingly people having more sensitivity to to design to design itself, and recognizing that um, uh, something that is super slim and and refined can offer as much, if not more, comfort than than a button back sofa. Does it make a difference if the seat's made of leather or reconstituted mushroom or vegan leather? I, I, or? Definitely. There, there are lighter materials than leather. Leather's quite a heavy uh, material. It's surprising just how thin they're able to, to um, literally scrape a leather down to. 
Um, but there are materials that frankly are better and lighter. And in the past, it, it, it was said that uh, leather was a language of luxury. Um, these days, if you're in first class particularly, you're more likely to see um, very good fabrics, which you know, for all sorts of you know, very simple reasons are more comfortable. Uh, see them used there, whereas in economy, leather is is a, a very robust finish that allows you to keep the thing clean much easier. And what about um, the other materials? So you know the the structures around the seat. Is there a lot of it carbon fiber or aluminium or is it steel? There's a lot of aluminium, and that can be, uh, you know, that is a light material, of course. Um, but there are other metals. Uh, titanium is, is increasingly used as are composite materials like carbon fibre and Kevlar. It's a balancing act, really. What to you is the ultimate um, flying experience when flying in the front? Mm, That's a tricky one. Um, (laughs) Interestingly, I think it depends on on the time. If you're flying overnight, uh, then I I really, all I want is as, as flat a bed as possible. During the day, uh, or during my my sort of uh, you know waking hours, I don't know. I I guess um, a, a well does you know it's got to be well designed for me to enjoy it. But I wouldn't be kind of partisan about it these days. There's a lot of very nice products up there, and and I'm always excited to try another, uh, you know the latest somebody else's new one. I, th- I think there's uh, they can be a little over complicated. To try and be more clever, if you like, than the last one, uh, and um, and that's that's not the best path necessarily. Yeah, I was wondering also about the difference. So, if you go on uh, Singapore Airlines um, and you're going into business class, I mean, the seat is so enormous. If you go on Virgin in upper class, you know, it's well now it's a I suppose more like a cabin. Some other airlines have got you know proper enclosed cabins is there not a tried and tested configuration that <laughs> <laughs> no no know, and and it's delightful that there isn't and and um and there's a number of reasons that you know there isn't a single business class or first class product that ticks uh the box for everybody uh, at all of the time uh, and one of the most exciting ones, and, uh, and genuinely it is exciting, we work all over the world. And um, if you're working in the Far East, the cultural sensitivities dictate a different approach to if you're working on an identical sounding product for, to fly in the same aircraft coming out of the US or out of Europe. Everywhere has got cultural norms. And whilst you... Whilst there are kind of fashions, like everybody wants it to lie flat, somebody in one part of the world might be prepared to be lying flat uh, and be able to be seen, whereas in another part of the world, they they absolutely have to have complete privacy. And and right there, you've got two very different briefs. So at the start of the job, we like to go in and do a cultural immersion with that client we do a technical immersion as well where we understand we want to understand how they manufacture because if you if you're designing in carbon fiber and they say oh yeah but we're the world's best at machining and casting metals you you've gone down the wrong direction so you need to understand the technical issues but the cultural immersion is always so interesting one of the things you wouldn't necessarily think about but i do you know within many design disciplines you do think about the east and the west and about you know color about you know fabrication yeah, materials etc absolutely so so what are the biggest then differences between the east and the west in terms of how you approach the design i think the approach isn't different it is the it is the um it's the criteria that that will crystallize the design and and as i've already touched on if we're working in the Far East, the way that the dining service is done is quite different. The catering uplift, and we design the catering part as well. Um, so those elements are different. Um, the way that people may or may not want to congregate 
on a flight are different, and indeed legislation uh, can allow or disallow that, and the way that they may want to sleep and watch entertainment will be different from from uh, in in the West, and those nuances. Um, the the more you uh, look into them and the more you understand them, actually, the bigger they become, and so you can you can pick up a brief to do a lie flat business class seat at a certain width and pitch, one in the east and one in the west, and the the end result can be significantly different by the time. Uh, you know, in the East, you've taken account of the way that the passenger interacts with the staff or the staff interact with the passenger compared to what's expected uh, in Europe. I mean, they, they're very, very different. And, and in turn, that means that you have to allow the way that that relationship can operate. The, you know, the architecture of the seat has got to allow an interaction. Is it acceptable to drop a screen down to be able to talk to somebody uh, in the in Europe, or, or perhaps in the Far East? Is it essential to be able to drop a screen down before you talk to anybody? You know, and and so those things throw up really very interesting design issues. Yeah, the complex world of um, <laughs> of aircraft uh, configuration. Yeah, indeed, and and as I say, that's uh, you know that is the pleasure, I guess, of it. I just wanted to ask you more about this idea of sustainability and sustainable practice. And particularly within the luxury market, it's becoming so much more important. And I wondered what sustainability means to you personally, but then also within the world of your work. Um, I, I, do you know, I think sustainable, um, I'd love to bring up a Land Rover car right here. Uh, you know, where it's a, it's a perfect example of of a vilified um, brand by people of a, uh, uh, who are concerned about the world, but the fact is that that they have historically been made in such a way um, that they just keep on going, and to me that's sustainable. Um, the way that people use them, as a as in on a school run, in, instead of crossing. <laughs> crossing a desert well that you know that's people i guess but they're you know the the way they're made is is pretty good um but the approach to the design certainly in the past allowed for something to go on indefinitely um i you know my watch is really actually getting pretty old now it's from the late 60s and it's clockwork um, automatic, but it's still going, and I think it's a nice, sustainable piece of design. I, I want to talk about a bit about the future and how you see things changing within av aviation. And I, I guess the reason I'm asking, I'm just thinking about Airlander. Oh yes. <laughs> Do you know I love Airlander? I went to see it. Oh gosh, must be four years ago, and it's an astonishing thing when you walk into the hangar. But the idea of an airship, and moreover, a kind of hybrid one that's got a little bit of power about it, I think is a terrific idea. Back when we designed that interior for Concorde, the, the, the mantra for the project was that you were buying time. So if you, if you flip it round the other way um, uh, to an airship, which is the slowest thing in the world, in a funny way there you're buying time as well, but you're buying an awful lot of it as opposed to saving it. And I think uh, I'm amazed uh, that there aren't more uh, developments going on in that type of aviation because I do believe that the traveling world is is more and more interested in experience. I was just thinking about the renders I've seen of the Airlander, and they it looks quite substantial. The actual aircraft, yeah, it is. Yeah, the interiors of the well, aircraft. Well, it, it's a big thing, and the and the gondola underneath is it's not that big. At least the one I saw wasn't terribly big. It's all about weight, you know. The, it can be as as big as the as the equations to lift the thing in the air allow it to be. But, but as a viable form of aircraft, as long as you're not in a tearing rush, it is genuinely a, a very good one. And I have to say, I, I've spent my life riding motorbikes, and sometimes um, I've ridden quite a long way. 
and if in a few days you go from the top to the bottom of France, uh, you experience France in a way that um, le- it leaves it in your mind forever because you, you feel the temperature changing as you head south, the smells change. The, the, I mean, it is an extraordinary, if you're traveling slowly, which relatively you are if you're you know, down on the road or up in an uh, air balloon, you can get a lot more out of your journey. What are the most exciting things that we can expect in business or first class or even economy class travel? It's a good question, and it will depend where in the world you're flying, because, as I said, the cultural impact is not insignificant. I would like to think that we are able to further deconstruct the cabin away from the historical norms of providing somewhere for you to, to fly, as in, uh, you know, really quite substantial seat structures. I think we know uh, from uh, you know from the world of seating design that seats can be much lighter and more minimal and indeed behavior you know everyone feels the need to take a bag onto the aircraft these days um, i'd like to see the whole boarding and deboarding the whole culture of how that works completely changed it would it would allow us to to make quite an impact on the aircraft uh, and the other thing of course is people do feel they simply have to be served a drink and a snack and possibly a meal. Uh, and, and that's for an hour and a half in an aircraft. You know, when you're going for longer, um, it's astonishing what, what, what's expected. And I think that needs a little, a little bit more thought, I guess. Chicken and beef has kind of had its day, I'd like to think. <laughs> what kind of changes would you think there would be? Is it more entertainment or less entertainment, more food, less food? I would like to see more creative space that allows better interaction with the passengers, um, between themselves, that is. Uh, you know, if you, if you board a, a train, you tend to have a choice as to whether to share a table or to sit um, in your own little tiny row. Or, and, and I just think that cabins could and should um, offer a little bit more uh, a hu- a sort of humanity, I guess, that, you know, the way we really are rather than the way that we can most neatly be packaged. Um, and so I would, like to, I would like to see some of the thoughts that we and other designers have been tabling for a very long time. I'd like to see them get a little bit more weight. Yeah, I mean, I have seen some concept designs for kind of future flying where they're like you've said i I guess are much more social yeah um social environments where people can congregate um in different ways yeah i mean you know so we designed uh, in the last few years new lounges for uh virgin um on their aircraft and in the old days they had bars designed and i love that they acknowledged and put effort behind changing that little cultural offering from a, a sit-up at a bar, bar stool, to a, a, a more convivial recline-in-a-sofa kind of um, public space for, for the passengers. I think there's a lot of opportunity with actually embodying some of the ideas we've been banging on about for a long time. And hopefully they're not going to only be limited to to people sitting no, in the front. No, uh, and, you know, uh, frankly, they don't need to be. There are ways you can get a surprisingly good, uh, th- we call it a third space product, out of somewhere that's, that's really not a very big area. I mean, I've been on um, the Virgin Aircraft where they've got the lounge. And it is it is a much nicer space than the bar. Yeah. Because the bar, you've kind of felt like um, you were being propped up at the bar well, so you almost felt you had to kind of order something quite dark and strong you know um whereas whereas you c- could ask for a cup of tea if you're sitting down in a it's a very it's a very uh, and socially it's a very diffusing space uh, a loft i mean i think that's what we what what it was called uh, to sit down in whereas a bar is a very focused you know 
it's in a movie and a lot and a lot of stuff happens in a bar and it, and it's not necessarily relaxing <laughs> no. as well, this is this is i mean it's pr- probably a slightly stupid question virgin used to have espresso machines in upper class uh-huh yeah and they've removed them and i've never understood why well do you know <laughs> in catering uh, as with materials there there are innovations constantly and i suspect that uh they were simply offered a, a better way to do the job. Uh, I mean, I find it astonishing how popular the world of capsule coffee has become. Um, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't cope with throwing away all that aluminium, and of course, it can be recycled. But of course, mostly it's not. Um, and I don't understand what's wrong with putting ground coffee into something. And you know, but there we are. So I wanted to end with the question I ask. Um all our guests is what is your luxury yes that's a tricky one isn't it (laughs) do you know i thought about that because i knew it was coming and and it's tempting to describe something that you've acquired been given or bought over the years but actually if i in its sort of purest form um my luxury uh and my wife will love this but it is going to somewhere and mostly somewhere like cartier and it's a fabulous experience, the shop. It's, it's, it's uh, they, because uh, there's quite a few of them, but they're a beautiful shop. And um, the service is just like in the best hotel or restaurant. It's there, but, it, but it's not intrusive. Um, and when you actually have chosen something gorgeous, you're, you know, you're, you're given a seat and you can sit down and... The, as, and the thing is beautifully wrapped, and I, everything about the about everything about the experience is luxurious. And ultimately, ultimately, the thing that you buy is entirely luxurious. And it has at its heart, it has craft because it's going to be something that is probably pretty well made. So it ticks a lot of the boxes for me. But it, I, I, I'm absolutely not kidding. The experience of shopping. And it doesn't have to be Cartier, uh, Chanel will do. <laughs> but the experience of going to, to a really genuinely good, and I think these days I'm, I'm very sceptical about everything, frankly, and I don't quite believe a lot of the hype in an awful lot of these high-end brands. But, but there's no denying that in some of them you do get exemplary service and you get, you know, the everything about it is there to look after you, and the, and of course, ultimately, the thing you buy is incredibly good. It's really very nice, individually stamped, you know, or marked rather. Mm. So it, it does have a lot of the qualities, if you like, that I would call my luxury. Brilliant. That is the perfect um, way to end. We, I could have chatted for hours, but this insight into the into your world has been has been fantastic, Adam. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Sean. Very uh, interesting conversation. Thank you, Adam. Thank you to our partner, Intellect Books. Thank you for listening and join us next time on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast.